Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. So we're continuing our series on medical malpractice, and we're very excited to have Laura Beals, our guest. Uh, Ms. Beal has more than 20 years of experience as a healthcare journalist and most recently developed a very interesting and alarming uh, malpractice case, went into this on the Dr. Death podcast, which is a fantastic podcast if anybody hasn't listened to it. Uh, this is a story of a neurosurgeon who was tried and convicted in criminal courts because of some operative complications. Laura's here to discuss with us what she learned from this case and talk to us a little bit about uh, physician peer reporting. Thank you for joining us, Ms. Beal. Uh, my pleasure to be here. So we like to start all our podcasts with just a little bit of, you know, background of uh, who you are, where you're from. You can tell us a little bit about your background and, and your experience in healthcare journalism. And then, you know, how did you get involved in this case and how did you get interested in doing this podcast? Sure. So I am um, actually a longtime print reporter. Um, I started, I worked the longest at the Dallas Morning News, the daily newspaper here in Dallas. And I worked there for many years, and then about ten years ago, I uh, I quit and I started freelancing for a number of reasons, and I've been a freelancer ever since. So mostly since I left kind of the daily newspaper world, I've I've been a magazine writer. I've written for various magazines, and I still write uh, some for the New York Times Science section. Um, but but I I really did not have any audio experience before uh, before I did Dr. Death. So we're going to delve right into the dissection of the day. It's the part of the program where we go into the details about what we're talking about. And today, obviously, it's very exciting. And can you tell us a little bit more specifically, give us a synopsis of what this was all about, this particular case? So this is a case that got, it got considerable local publicity here in Dallas. It didn't, I don't, think it got a whole it got some national attention but not a whole lot but it was the case of a neurosurgeon named Christopher Dunch and he came to Dallas in uh, 2000 mid 2011 from Memphis where he had gone both to medical school and to residency and I just want to point out one thing that I've heard from the medical community since then is that uh um, I confused his medical school with his residence that was actually not the case he was at the same institution for, for both. So it didn't get him mixed up. He just, he said he was in Memphis the whole time. And then he did a fellowship there also. So he pretty much did all of his training uh, in Memphis, came to Dallas. And during his uh, about two years that he operated in Dallas, he, uh, the district attorney determined that he operated on, oh golly, I believe it was 38 patients here in Dallas, and the vast majority of them, I believe 33 of them, ended up with major complications, and two people, two people died. And so he was, he, you know, he he shouldn't have been operating. He was unqualified to to operate. And when it became apparent that he definitely had problems operating, uh, there were there were a couple of there were a couple of surgeons in particular in Dallas, although there were several who were trying to stop him and they found that that was, that was quite difficult. And so pretty much the entire time he was operating, there were a group of doctors 
here in Dallas who were trying to stop him, but they they couldn't. And so the podcast really it's it's about Christopher Dunch, but the real story is actually about our healthcare system and the system that polices doctors and how how this how a surgeon this bad was able to continue operating for almost two years on patients and the fact that even his patients had no idea and they thought they were doing their homework, even his very last patient, you know, tried to find everything he could about him. These are patients who some even had, the, you know, enough wherewithal to look him up on the state medical board to see if there was anything. And of course, there was nothing. He was under investigation, but there was nothing posted. And so even the very last patient that he operated on thought he had checked him out and yet he was left with it. He, he was in for a cervical spine operation. He ended up with his vocal cords cut, uh, quite a bit of other damage. Dr. Dench sewed him up with a sponge still in his throat. And then shortly after that, he was finally stopped. So that's actually a great lead into our next couple of questions of, you know, how did he get to that point? And I know on your podcast, you go into that. But one of the most interesting pieces to me in the information you discovered, and this is what I've talked with my medical school classmates at length, we've, we've all been flabbergasted at his case volumes and residency and how low they were. And um, right. even, even thinking that this training was prior to when the ACGME was tracking case logs, we just thought this seemed really like, how is that possible? And so I was wondering, I know you mentioned it, but when you were talking to people at his training institution or his program directors, did anyone seem like really shocked by those numbers? Did they have an explanation aside from the fact that he was engaged in research at the time? Like how, how exactly did he finish a program with such low numbers? So, so this was probably in, you know, in a story that's filled with, you know, a lot of shocking things. Procedurally, this was probably the most shocking thing was his uh, the fact that he did have such a low caseload number. So first, you have to understand where that number comes from. Uh, the people at his medical school, at his residency training program, his fellowship supervisor, none of those people are talking. They would not talk with me. I tried repeatedly to get information um, about this, and and no one is, no one there would would speak with me. They wouldn't even answer written questions. I only got letters back from attorneys <laughs> on this question about how they were not speaking with me. So, so that's the first thing is these are, this is a definite question. I wish I knew the answer. And the people who know the answer are not talking. The district attorney in Dallas, because he was eventually prosecuted in a criminal court, which, you know, which that was the only way that uh, this group of surgeons here and, and his patients thought that he would be stopped as if he would just charge criminally. So the district attorney also wanted to know how well he had been trained and couldn't get the information because I don't know if this is just true for Tennessee, but the residency, specific residency records are pretty protected. So you can't, she couldn't get those. So, uh, but she did have criminal subpoena power. And so she subpoenaed every hospital that he had listed on his CV where he had done any training. And these were several institutions throughout Memphis. And so she sent subpoenas to all the hospitals to get all the records of every case where he had either 
He had either been the surgeon on the case, he had assisted on the case. So in other words, every case except those where he might have been just observing. And so the subpoenas then only brought back 100 records. So that's where that number came from, is this was, this was through subpoena what the district attorney was able, uh, able to find. So there's a few possibilities for this. One is that the number is correct, and he did a shockingly low number of cases while he was in his residency. And I, I don't know how that would have happened. But, you know, that I, I don't know. That's a that's a that's a big number. The other the other possibility is that the number is wrong and that he did do the requisite number of cases and he still came out a terrible surgeon. So I don't and he was still let out of the program. So I'm not sure which of those possibilities is the most comforting, you know, that that he was let out with such a low caseload or he had as much as he was required to do and he still wasn't trained and he still got out of the program. So I have the same questions as you do, uh, but the people who know the answers are are not talking. So, but e- either way, I, I think it was a system breakdown there. Or I guess the other possibility is he wasn't trained and they didn't know he wasn't trained and they let him out. But I don't, you all can probably know better than I can if, that's, if, if the people who supervise your residencies don't know how good a surgeon you are by the time you leave the program. Yeah. And I think that kind of ties into our next question, which was, you know, yet another disturbing fact that there was responsibility um, of, you know, making other people aware. And that was just passed off by like providers and hospitals he worked in. And he was still allowed to keep working even after having all these major complications. Did you um, get to know about like were there talks of litigation against his program director or like other employers who gave, you know, recommendations despite knowing issues of drug abuse and, you know, still recommended them to like get him to like have employment at some other hospital? Yes. So this was also one of the more disturbing things that I learned is that he was passed around and I was able to obtain. So so his supervisors, his residency supervisors were not talking, but I was able to obtain the recommendation forms that they sent to the hospital, the first hospital in Dallas where he worked. And on that recommendation form, it's a, it's a pretty good glowing recommendation. And um, there's no real qualms expressed at all about his abilities. I think there was one for like interpersonal skills where they rated it as average but uh but there was nothing there was nothing on those forms that indicated any concern and i we do know that during his residency um he was uh he was put into a rehab program for impaired physicians when some concerns came up about um about substance abuse and so there was a long period of time where he was in he was put into some kind of rehab, and they did have concerns about substance abuse, but that that wasn't expressed on the form at all. There there were no concerns, and then but then even after that, so he was given recommend he was giving good recommendations from his um, uh, it, from the people in Memphis. Then in Dallas, after after the Dallas first Dallas hospital wanted to get rid of him, he wasn't fired outright because that would have triggered an automatic reporting to the National Practitioner Data Bank. 
So he was allowed to resign, which then sort of skirted the rules about, you know, kind of flagging this in the databank. And then each hospital after that just kind of quietly let him go and and let him become some someone else's problem. And again, I don't know why they did that, because um, they also they also were not discussing him. But in the podcast, I talk about this. There's there's quite a bit of fear of litigation that if you fire a doctor outright, if you hurt his or her reputation, then you could be sued for that. And so the, it's just easier to just let them go quietly. And uh, and that's what happened in this case. Is there? Have you heard anything about? Is there any interest or uh, in bringing litigation to some of these people that might be responsible for for that? For him to to continue to practice and that and it, people that obviously knew he was unsafe, but didn't do anything about it, and moreover pr- propagated the problem by giving him you know recommendations. Has there been? Is, is there any recourse? Right. Well, those people accountable. And and actually, one of the things I forgot to say, which is is that when he left the first hospital, and remember, he was left after his the very last two patients, the the second to last patient he operated on at uh, Baylor Plano Hospital in Dallas, the second to last patient was his best friend who was left a quadriplegic after the operation, and the last patient was a lady who went in for um, a routine, just a routine back operation, supposed to be outpatient, and she died. And at that point, they decided, yes, he was too bad. Uh, he, he was too bad to keep. And yet they gave him a letter uh, when he left through pressure from his attorney that that uh, indicated that he had left without any, you know, without any trouble uh, or without anything on his record there. So to answer your question, yes, they so the patients did sue the hospital for malpractice and they didn't, you know, Texas is a. Uh, a tort reform state, so they didn't get a very big settlement, but I believe I counted 19 suits. There were 19 suits filed on behalf of the 30-some patients that he had. They they did file suits, but the nature of the suit was basically that he was, you know, a- allowed to operate there even when they, you know, when they knew. But again, I mean, they I don't know how much the settlements are are not it's part of a non-disclosure agreement so i don't know how much settlement they got but i was told that they didn't get very much um, and one person even tried to sue because of the state getting around the state rules tried to sue in federal court you know try to take that route and sue in federal court to get some some recourse and again that that suit was um was resolved and, and i don't know the terms of that now you mentioned so you, you mentioned the the Texas malpractice tort reform and so you talked about this a little bit in the podcast but can you explain a little bit about that like how much do you think the Texas malpractice tort reform contributed to the responsibility getting passed down the line and is how widespread is is that in other states So this was probably the most controversial uh, area that I addressed and as you can imagine it's 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 quite a sensitive subject on the part of of doctors, and I, I recognize that. So I have to start out by saying tort reform was not on my radar when I started the story. It wasn't, I didn't set out to, I didn't set out actually to say anything about tort reform, but I was surprised when his patients who were, you know, they, they were, most of them were seriously injured or, or died, and yet they couldn't I was surprised when they told me that they had trouble finding attorneys who would take their case, even when it was so 
clearly malpractice. So that's why I mentioned it. So I have to start to say it was not an attack on doctors. I think doctors are good people. I think the vast majority of doctors are, are, you know, good people. And I do understand why the tort reform legislation was passed. It only played into this story one in the sense of, and really the sense of justice that the patients could obtain was not great, at least in the civil system. So that's why so many of them were, were hopeful that the criminal justice system would really, um, would really make a difference. But, but the other issue is that this gets back to the fear of lawsuits. So, and I, I can't get inside their head, but where the hospitals, they were really, they have a great, a greater reason to fear, I think, a suit from a doctor who could say, you ruined my reputation. You know, I can't get a job. I was going to make this much per year and now you owe me this much per year. I think if you're trying to weigh your risk, and someone in the, you know, someone in the podcast said this, if you're trying to weigh your risk of what's your greatest legal liability, and you know that you don't have as much to fear from a patient as you do from a doctor who might say you, you were wronged him, well, that maybe that played into their, uh, into their decision. So, you know, I, I just want to be clear, I was not trying to attack doctors or say doctors are greedy, greedy people or bad people. That was not the, that was not the purpose at all. It was just, a part of this story that was that was inherent to the event was it the biggest thing? No, I mean this was, you know, this this tragedy was not any one overbearing thing, other than, of course, you know, Christopher Dunch himself and his personality and his lack of skill. But but in terms of the system, it was a whole bunch of things that really came together, uh, and tort reform was just one one piece of that. I'm not blaming the whole thing on tort reform. Along those lines of this was a systemic breakdown, this being the first, uh, you know, surgeon getting tried in criminal court, the obvious discussion and concern from physicians is, is this going to set a precedent, especially for surgeons, you know, something we do in the operating room, if that can be in criminal court, because we talk about ethically, you know, patient is consenting to, uh, to us, basically causing them physical harm, although it's not harm because we're cutting on them. But do you think that this case was such an outlier that we really should not have that fear? Or do you think that there is, to some extent, a precedent being set that this responsibility, you know, can be transferred over to criminal court? Well, of course, I mean, it's a legitimate question. And if you have not yet read the dissenting opinion on his appeal, which his, his appeal decision came down last week. And uh, there were three judges, two of them, he, he was denied the appeal based on the ruling of two of them, but there was a dissenting opinion. And if you have not read it, you, you should, it's quite interesting. And the judge in that case, one of the reasons why this, this case troubles him is just what you said. Like, are we setting a precedent? And during the appeal, hearing, I, I was there and he even asked questions about that and doesn't even stop at the surgeons. I mean, what if, you know, what about, you know, the, the scrub tech who's handing him the instruments, who's handing him the scalpel? Well, is that, if you say that surgeon is committing a crime, is the, is everybody in the OR then complicit in that, in that crime? And, and yes, it's a very interesting question. And I, I don't know what the answer is. My gut feeling would be that he was such an outlier that I can't, I can't see like 
you know, I can't see another doctor or I can't see doctors being routinely charged this way, but I, I, I really, I really don't know, but I, I, I do see the concern about that. I mean, I, I don't have to tell you all that, you know, doctors are put in positions every day and surgeons where you have to make life and death decisions on the spot. And if you could be, you know, held criminally liable for making a, a wrong decision that was made in good faith, I can see where that would be quite unsettling. But, but my sense would be that he was just such an anomaly. I do want to correct one other thing, though. I have had in the podcast and the district attorney had looked and couldn't find any other case of a surgeon being held criminally liable for what happened. However, I heard since this came out from a member of the military and he told me of a case of a military surgeon that was tried in a in a military court on a criminal case. And I haven't had a chance to look it up, but I thought it was interesting. He's like, this is not the first surgeon. There was one actually tried in a military court uh, along similar grounds, criminally liable for malpractice. So uh, just as a side note, what type of feedback have you gotten personally? Have you found anything kind of uh, against you in this or pro you or where, where did you uh, get feedback in terms of your role in this podcast and in this case? So not actually it's been over, you know, I mean, I've been, first of all, I have to say I was overwhelmed at the response from this. I had no idea that this was going to be, you know, that we would be talking today about something that has been downloaded the latest numbers I have, which are actually three weeks old, is like 20, 20 million downloads, which I never, never thought that. So, so the the story resonated with a lot of people. Overwhelmingly, I, I actually haven't gotten, except for the tort reform pieces, you might imagine, um, and even that hasn't been that that great. I, I, it's been overwhelmingly supportive, even you know from doctors too, and. You know, you go into journalism to make a difference. At least that's what I do. That's what most journalists do. Is you want to, you want to, you know, share information that will that will make a difference for us as a um, as people. And it's been gratifying to me. I've gotten hundreds, hundreds, literally, of emails from physicians, from nurses, from people who work in operating rooms, saying, you know, this story has really prompted some very serious discussions. Um, I've heard from lots of residency program directors, too. <laughs> you know, people who are involved in this who are like, this really makes us think, like, what would what should we do? What would what would we do if we saw, you know, a doctor? And and I and and also the the feedback is, you know, run the gamut from you know, medical personnel who say, I could, I just could never see something like this happen to people say, oh, I could totally see how something like this could happen. So, um, but, but it's really prompted a lot of soul searching among, uh, I think among members, especially of the surgical community, like, what would I do? You know, if this, if, if this guy was in my operating room, what would I do? And I, I think that's good. I think we need to have these discussions. I've heard from tons of residency directors who say, you know, I could see how this would happen because it's really, really hard to get rid of of an incompetent resident. Like even we've seen it. And, it and and several of them have written to me saying, I feel really guilty because I have let 
surgeons go who I knew, you know, they weren't just bad, but I had concerns about them, but it's easier just to pass them along. I've had one, one of the most moving emails. I got this very long email from a doctor who told me the podcast had affected him personally on a deep level because he had seen a surgeon that he thought he was a, he was an anesthesiologist. And he said, I know there was a surgeon who I saw in my operating room and there were people who died with this surgeon and I didn't say anything, you know, because they died from complications that could have been passed, you know, could have been seen as, as this just occurs, but it, it occurred too much. He said, I know that this person was dangerous and I just didn't have the courage to, to speak up. And now this person is at another hospital. And I, I really been like unable to sleep since I heard your podcast thinking about this. So all of which is to say, I'm really glad those discussions are happening. I've also heard from lots and lots of patients who are saying, you know, this makes me want to really, I'm getting a second opinion. I'm checking out my doctor. I'm realizing how little we can find out. I'm, I'm taking every avenue I can to make sure that my surgeon is, is, um, is a good surgeon. And, and I don't want to scare people because most surgeons I think are great. Our good people are good surgeons. But if you get that one, if you get the doctor done, it's, it's really bad. So um, I'm not sure I answered your question, but, but it's, it's been overwhelming. The only, really the only thing that the doctors have taken issue with was, uh, was that I talked about tort reform. And even that it wasn't like, I'd say it wasn't, uh, it was very respectful. It was like, well, I really liked your podcast, except for those 10 minutes that you talked about short reform. So, so, um, even at that, I, I, uh, the feedback has been overwhelmingly, you know, just thought provoking, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you kind of covered our few, a uh, few of our uh, next questions, but in this discussion and all the feedback that you just mentioned, um, what do you think, what have you gathered that uh, could be the next steps for us to take as a surgical and a medical community, especially like, should there be a system in place for us to streamline, um, uh, you know, reportings like this, where just like you mentioned, the anesthesiologist was unable to kind of speak up uh, what he was witnessing every day. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think so. I mean, I think there needs to be, and I think it needs to be easier. You know, I mean, I'm not in the OR, so I can't speak specifically, but I, I think there definitely, from all the emails I've gotten, there needs to be some easier system that both makes it easier to speak up if, if you're concerned about a doctor, but not so easy that it could be used to you know, there's the concern I've seen in my emails. The concern is where's that balance between making it easy to speak up and not making it so easy that this becomes a political hit job, which, you know, hospitals are like any other entity. There's, you know, internal politics involved. And so if there's a doctor, people, he's a perfectly fine doctor, but people, other people just don't like this person. Like you don't want to, you don't want to make it so easy that it can be abused. And, and I don't know what that would, I don't know what that system would be, but it seems like there needs to be something, you know, something to flag it. And then I don't know. I mean, there needs to be, you know, something that makes it. And and a lot of this is on administration, you know, and I've heard from very few, interestingly enough, 
people in hospital administration. It's mostly been, you know, people who are on the on the ground. But, you know, this was an administrative failure. I mean, the you know, it was the hospital administrators who didn't report him to the state board, who didn't report him to the practitioner data bank. And and there needs to be some accountability you know, for that. Like if, if you're if you're supposed to report a doctor, don't take great pains to get around not doing it, which is what happened here. So when you were talking to, you know, the doctors that did finally, you know, come forward and, and report this guy, did you get a sense as to, you know, kind of their, what their thought process was or whether they were internally conflicted? I mean, because certainly, you know, I'm a surgeon, uh, you know, I would be I would be, you know, lying if I said I never had a bad outcome or bad things didn't happen. Where is that? And, I, you know, I, I watched my colleagues have sometimes have bad outcomes. Where is that line? where, you know, this is just... Well, and especially in neurosurgery, I think that's what made this hard is the you know, right. neurosurgery, right. you know, has complications and that's part of it. And and I think that's why, to be fair to the to the state board, they were, they were really taken to task, you know, after this happened for taking so long to investigate. But when I did talk to them, one of the complicating issues was that this was a neurosurgeon. I mean, how do you separate you know, just normal complications from a surgeon who just shouldn't be operating. That's one reason why it took them so long to to uh, investigate this. You know, I don't know. I, I, I do know that the surgeons in this case, they were not conflicted. Okay. It was very evident. It was very clear that he was incompetent. And I've even heard from a couple more surgeons who who weren't on the podcast, but who talked to me afterwards, who had seen him operate. And one of them said, you know, watched him operate and said, I don't think he had any depth perception. Like the reason he kept, you know, cutting people's vertebral arteries is he just didn't know basic anatomy. I mean, this was, and this was clear from one surgery. So I think if you were in, you know, I, I think if you were another surgeon and you witnessed something this bad, there would be no conflict. It's, it was very clear that it wasn't just a normal complication. So no, they were not conflicted at all uh, because they knew how, how bad he was. But if it were somebody who was just a little bit bad and it could be written off, I, I could see where there, where there would be a conflict. And I, I don't know where that line, I don't know where that line is, frankly. It seems like there needs to be a, a way for, I mean, cause nobody's, you know, would be, Looking from the outside for the layman, I think it'd be very, very difficult to tell a good surgeon from a bad surgeon. But as a surgeon looking at other surgeons and having colleagues look at me, I, I hope that, that, you know, we would be able to uh, have a little bit more insight as to what's. Oh, they do. I mean, remember, it was so bad that one doctor, a vascular surgeon who was operating with him early on, actually tried to physically restrain him from yeah. operating. I mean, that's bad. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's evidence that how how bad he was. So I, I don't think there was any question. Yeah. Um, I don't think there was any question among among the surgeons here. The, the, the question was, how far were they going to go to take this? And then yeah. remember, you know, there's two that are highlighted in the podcast because they just wouldn't let it go. There were other surgeons who were who were also trying to stop him behind the scenes, reporting it to the board and going through the regular channels. But. But the two surgeons that were featured most in the podcast, they were relentless. They were totally relentless. And I found out later that they didn't say this because they're both they're both very different personalities, which you can gather from the from the podcast. But but they're not one to talk about their colleagues. But I heard later 
from some people who contacted me after that, that they were, while they were trying to stop him, they were getting a lot of pushback from their colleagues. Like, why are you doing this? Why don't you let this go? So, so they were getting a lot of pushback. Uh, and they got some pushback when they went to the district attorney and they talked to the district attorney for the reason you brought up at the beginning. It's like, well, now are we all going to be criminal when something goes wrong? So, so they did face some opposition and they're to be, they are to be credited for keeping on, you know, for keeping on. And there's a, there's a plaintiff's lawyer in the podcast who says, you know, if it weren't for, if it weren't for these doctors, he might still be operating. Seems like, uh, you know, it, it, needs, there, it needs to be built into the credentialing system or, you know, it's, it's really amazing to me that in 2018, if I'm going to buy a toothbrush, I can go on Amazon and get a million reviews and find the absolute best toothbrush. But even myself as a you know surgeon, when a family member of mine was having surgery, I really didn't have any way of telling whether or not the, the, the surgeon, you know, was a good surgeon or not. You know, that, that, right. that, that information is just not available to people. Right. And, and you ask about feedback. I mean, prob- there's another big theme to all the emails I've gotten. It's like, okay, so what do I do? You know, as a patient, like, where do I go to, to get information, you know, to find out, you know, you, you've just told me like how hard it is and how this guy got away with stuff because they couldn't find out. So what do we do? Right. And one of the unofficial bits of, of advice that I got, which I don't know if this is always practical, but but uh, I had more than one person tell me, ask the nurses. The nurses know who the bad doctors are. You know, they know who, who um, you know, they know who they would, well, let me rephrase. The nurses know who they would send their family members to. Right. So if you can, if you can unofficially talk to a nurse, then, then go do that. And even um, uh, when he had his revision surgery, one of the patients in the podcast, you know, he had to have more surgery. And he and he did that. He went to the floor. He went to the oh, you know, the the surgical floor of the hospital, and talked to the nurses about who was going to operate on him afterwards. Because obviously he was gun shy after this terrible experience. But yeah, I mean, this is a big problem, and I, I don't, I don't presume to have the answer. But it is a big problem that you can't find out critical information about your surgeon. This you know, this whole case is so interesting and it sheds light on these systemic issues and sheds light on actually fears that we have as surgeons. And so, you know, we're so grateful for you for spending the time with us today to talk about this a little bit more in depth. And we really encourage our listeners to um, check out Dr. Death if you haven't already listened to it. And uh, Laura, you want to tell our audience how they can listen to the podcast? Sure, you can. The easiest way it's it's available. You can one way is to go to to any any podcast listening app I, you know, on iTunes or Stitcher, and just search for Doctor Death, and it'll and it'll come up. And um, um, or you can go to uh, so it was produced by Wondery, um, and so you can go to wondery.com slash Doctor Death, and it'll come up there, um, and you can uh, and you can find it there, and and you also, if you subscribe to it, you'll get updates. For example, uh, people had subscribed, then um, uh, I actually broke the news last week about his appeals uh, ruling because I'd been following the case um, even before our local media. So Dr. Death listeners were the first ones to get the news about that his appeal had been denied. So if you subscribe, you can get 
you know, if there are updates on the case as they, um, as they come. And I, you know, I'm not doing updates for just every little thing because, you know, you don't want, you can overdo too, but just if there's something worth, you know, really worth saying. And so, um, you can find the original six episode series there plus, you know, some, a few updates have occurred since then. I think we've done two or three. Uh, there was yeah, the appeals hearing was one, and then um, there's one with a juror, an interesting conversation with a juror on the case and a lady who was in the a video that features prominently in the first episodes. And then uh, and then we put out one last week talking about the appeal, you know, and the the appeal being denied. So yeah, you can find it. You can find it there. So, but yeah, I just I I just want to say that it's been the response has really been incredible and I think it's because of all these issues that we've talked about I mean the story hits so close to home you know we're all going to be patients one day you know and and I, I think it raises a lot of a lot of discussion uh, you know Christopher Dunch was an outlier for sure but his case really I mean it, it really exposed a lot of larger uncomfortable truths about the healthcare system Thank you so much for being here, Laura. Oh, you're, you're welcome. Until next time, dominate the day.